when the punishment doesn't fit the crime, then it's not a punishment. It's been a truly shocking week of headlines in this country as Canadians wake up to the fact that even our worst killers don't always serve the justice they deserve, certainly not if they're women. Child killer Terry McClintock and serial killer Elizabeth Wetlaw are two of the worst killers in this country. Both should be rotting in 8 by 8 cells. But instead, we learn they're doing arts and crafts and, I don't know, bacon cookies and minimum security facilities that they have in no way yet earned a place at. The scales of justice are no longer balanced. It's true the rights of the accused must be protected, but it is becoming very clear that one end of that scale is severely tilted to the accused. And in this country, for justice to be done, it also has to be seen to be done. And these days, it doesn't really seem like that's the case. I know, I know lawyers will disagree with me, but that the rights of killers in this country are constantly being put in front of those whose lives they destroy is just as much an injustice. And yet time and time again, we are hearing this. I cannot count how many horrific crimes I've covered as a reporter. I have met countless families at their very darkest moments. Their worlds shattered by the most unimaginable horror. There was five-year-old Naomi Almeida. She was snatched from her London home in 2001 as she was sleeping. She was kidnapped right out of her living room, sexually assaulted, stuffed in a bag, killed. Ten-year-old Holly Jones, abducted as she walked home with a friend. She was raped, killed. Jane Kreba, shot and killed on Young Street on Boxing Day. Fifteen-year-old Stephanie Rangel, stabbed and left to die in a snowbank. Her killers, one of them a 15-year-old girl at the time, is already out on day passes, Ten years, ten years into her adult life sentence. In all of these cases, yeah, the cameras show up, their stories get told, flowers are laid out, candles lit, and of course, prayers and thoughts. But then it stops. And these people are simply left behind to fend for themselves. And they are dragged through the court process, and then they're left alone with their grief. And their lives are turned into a constant fight for justice court appearances, parole hearings, and like we see now, shock that they're the last to know when their loved one's killer is already out or, hey, yeah, bacon cakes at the healing lodge. Sure, victims of crime have rights in Ontario, barely. The paltry little bill states they be treated with courtesy, compassion, and respect for their personal dignity and privacy by justice system officials. So, yes, they get access to a small amount of money, not nearly enough, They get support through court process. So in other words, a person walks them in and out of the court, you know, helps them write a very sanitized victim impact statement. And oh, yes, they're supposed to be notified when or if the offender who killed their loved one is moved, paroled or escapes. (laughs) That's not happening. But it's woefully lacking and it is absolutely in need of being overhauled, especially especially if we're going to have this system that focuses more on rehab than actual justice, because today it is clear The folks making decisions clearly prefer to hug our thugs. So justice is no longer being seen in our justice system, and our current government is totally tone-deaf to the suffering of those left behind. And since life doesn't mean life for society's worse, the least we can do is give more care and support to those who did nothing more than wake up one day and have their complete existence destroyed, because it is they who are truly serving the life sentence. And that is my point on point for this Friday, October 5th of a long weekend. Boy, oh boy, aren't you glad to see today? 
It is a big weekend. A lot of people uh, needing the break. And it comes on a week where ugh, we have had some crazy, crazy, crazy headlines. Just, I, I don't know what it is. It's like Canadian killers. It's a good time to be one in this country now. You know, hell of a time. Big headlines. They're all making these big headlines in the last couple of weeks. Paul Bernardo, of course, back in the headlines. He made um, his court appearance today on a weapons charge. He was accused of having a shank. It's been dropped because the Crown didn't feel it could uh, convict him. And, of course, his lawyer, Fergus O'Connor, well, he argued he couldn't have done that. He was just, well, a victim himself, of course. Our defense uh, was uh, primarily that uh, he had no knowledge of it being there. And uh, during the course of investigation, it has become clear that there was many opportunities for many other people uh, to uh, have placed it there. And, of course, as you know, he's... He's reviled not by just people out of jail, but by people in jail. Someone just put that shank in there. Gee golly, don't know how that got there. I've only got 24 hours a day to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, whatever. And uh, the lawyer, of course, also making sure we know that Bernardo has been very well behaved, given the tough conditions that he endures in isolation. You know, his loving parents visit often. And yes, he has improved himself. And, you know, this guy's eligible for parole. He's been eligible since February, and he's got a hearing in the next couple of weekends. And, um, you know, again, you've got the French and Mojave family who are going to have to fight once again, write those letters, go and plead their case to make sure this monster doesn't get out. But, hey, he's got rights, no? I say that the rule of law must prevail uh, as part of our system, and the issue is not uh, just desserts, but the issue is risk. So the Parole Board of Canada will assess his risk based on he's uh, been of good behavior, and he's got certain support in the community. Mm-hmm. What support does he have in the community? I would. Lo- who's having him over? I'll take care of him. You know? Find my own shank. But yeah, so... You know, that's what we're dealing with, another parole here. I don't I don't think he'll actually get out. But who the hell knows? I didn't actually thought we'd be reading about McClintock and Wetlawfer either. But interestingly, uh, there are protesters who, you know, go up to Kingston. They drive up there and and they go to fight this. Here's Linda Bodwin, who's been protesting his release. Why are laws protecting convicted criminals, uh, convicted killers and child rapists? Because the victims never were protected. Were well, you know why that's fake. I mean, why, why, why are we a lot protecting someone that that took the life of young girls, right? Well, you have to write to Parliament. Price. You have to write to Parliament yes. if you want the laws to change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Parliament, they'll get right on it. After they call you ambulance chasers, yeah, those guys, the lawmakers, go to them. They'll just put it under review. And hide behind that. And, um, you know, as I was writing my opening, I started kind of poking around on some of the cases that I've covered. And that's when, of course, I learned Melissa Todorovic. Yeah, she too, living large. This is the woman who, when she was 15, she sexually manipulated her very loser boyfriend into luring 14-year-old Stephanie Wrangle from her home on New Year's Eve in 2008. Stephanie was home with her baby brother. Her parents had gone out. Her parents are two Toronto police officers. And they went out on New Year's. And big sister was taking care of baby brother. And uh, she got lured out of the house. And what happens? She's stabbed to death and left to die in a snowbank. 
and this girl was 15 at the time, sentenced, I might add, as an adult. So when we were covering this case, we couldn't talk about her whole case. And when the judge gave her her sentence, he said, hey, I don't buy it. I don't buy that you're as innocent as you say, and, and you know, you shouldn't be protected. So she, she was sentenced as an adult. And now 10 years in, she's got unescorted day passes. Isn't that grand? I get it. She's young. I get it. They want to rehabilitate you. But can no one just serve 25 years in this country when they've taken a life? Like, it's clear. And we're going to start looking into these because it's clear that life does not mean life in this country. Far, far from it. You can't even get these people to do 25 years And feel sorry for these people all you want. You're on your own because I don't. Because I've seen those people in the courts of how they're destroyed by this. Her baby brother, how he was destroyed by this. And then the other side of this issue, cases of not criminally responsible. You know, Vince Lee, who killed a man and tried to eat him on a bus. He's already out. Richard Kashkar killed Sergeant Ryan Russell with a snowplow. Oh, he's doing really well, so he's on his way out. And then on Thursday, just yesterday... Matthew DeGroote, who killed five kids, five kids. They were just starting out in life at a Calgary house party back in 2014. And the, you know, he is too found not criminally responsible. And now he's being given to move around the community. He'll be moved to Edmonton because Calgary will go nuts if he comes out there. And then he's going to go into a halfway house. He's only, he hasn't even served two years. But the Alberta Review Board says, oh, he's a model patient. He's taking his meds. So a guy who kills five college kids, found not criminally responsible because he didn't understand what he was doing at the time. So imagine how those families are feeling. Imagine how they feel. He killed five college kids. Zachariah Rathwell, Lawrence Hong, Caitlin Paris. Jordan Segura and Josh Hunter. They were at a party having fun, and he stabbed them one by one. And the review boards have this one-size-fits-all approach. He's doing well. He's taking his medicine. He's doing, go on, be free. We love you. And these families go to the hearings. They were there yesterday pleading their case. They had to hear all the details again and hear how great this young guy is, and their kids are all dead. They don't have a voice. Here is Caitlin's father, Greg Paris. Regardless of his mental health now or in the future, we know the full extent of what he's capable of doing. And the enormous impact of what he did is something each of, each of us lives with each and every day. There's no reprieve or closure for us. And the magnitude of the unimaginable acts he committed are ever present in our thoughts, in our nightmares, and in our lives. He's being polite. I spoke to Zachariah's father, Bruce. I spoke to him for a good long time today. And he took me through the hearing yesterday and how he felt, how they all felt. They didn't even exist in that room. They felt that they were absolutely non-existent. All they kept saying was, praising for this Matthew, praise, praise, look how great he is, look this. And these families are sitting back going, dear God, where do we belong? And he's told me about the destruction it's caused for him, the grief, the anger, and what it's done to his other son. So it's great that this killer's now on the meds and getting on with his life, but, you know, it does absolutely sweet nothing for all the people who are left behind to pick up the pieces. So it's great. The system's working for the criminals, but it sure as heck is not working for these people. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.